0: What's good, everybody? I'm John G. Stremski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan.
1: We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure
2: you follow the show on Spotify.
3: This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
4: Welcome back to Flying Coach, the podcast where coaches talk freely, as we've learned, and we are having a blast with it. My name is Peter Schrager. I'm one of the co-hosts on Good Morning Football on the NFL Network, and I am joined by my co host the wonderful, the uh, verbose when is necessary, and the concise when necessary. And one of my great friends, Mr. Sean McVeigh, the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. What's up, big guy? Uh,
0: wonderful. I will take that one, Peter. <laughs> you know, you just always know how to make me feel good, buddy.
4: Yeah. Um, look, the Kyle Shanahan episode was gangbusters. We got such a great conversation with Kyle. The Troy Aikman ones before that did uh, incredible traffic online and got such feedback. I'm really excited about this episode. I think it's a different type of episode where it's a coach that candidly, I don't know. What was your relationship with our guest from this episode going into this one today?
0: You know, I didn't know him at all uh, other than over the last year, the natural conversations that inevitably come up, uh, you know, amongst head coaches and, um, you know, we've had great interaction over this last year, but I, you know, I knew of him. We had never had any prior interactions, but think people get a good feel for you know the ownership that he has in all three phases the type of head coach a commitment to a philosophy being around some great guys like coach Belichick and coach Saban but also putting his own stamp on what the Giants brand of football will look like under his guidance and leadership and a lot of really good things to take away for sure Peter
4: I think he's awesome it's Joe Judge the head coach of the New York Giants it's flying coach episode nine enjoy All right, Sean, our guest this week is uh, none other than the head coach of the New York Giants. Uh, it's maybe, I'm in the New York area. I mean, it might be the topic of the summer. Everyone's excited about this team, and I couldn't be more excited for his second year as a head coach in the NFL. Let's welcome in the man from Big Blue, Mr. Joe Judge. Joe, welcome to Flying Coach.
1: Hey, man, appreciate it, guys. Glad to be here. appreciate you having me on.
0: No, it's it's great to have you, Coach. I, I know during this time, this is... Uh, probably one of the few times that we get a chance to unplug, you know, I've always, I've said over the last couple episodes and really, you know, just whenever I've talked, you know, I'm still struggling to find that balance, that true ability to truly unplug. You ever, you let yourself go and, and can you get away and detach or, or you, you have a tough time with that? Like I know I do too.
1: So the biggest thing we've kind of found out, my wife's kind of the one broke the code is she's got to get me out of town. Yeah. As long as I'm in town I'm in the office. I'm staying connected. I'm doing something. She can pull me out of town and I'll still kind of just set aside. Sorry, look, I'll wake up every morning. I'll work from call at six 30 till noon, you know, and then all of a sudden we'll go beach time. We'll go, you know, full family time down there. But, you know, look, unless they kind of get me out in the water on a boat or something like that, where I don't have a connection to something, <laughs> I kind of find a way of every day saying, no, 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 I'm not doing much today. And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, you got to close that off and cut it out. But, uh, like, you know, how it is, it's, You got a thousand things going through your head. It's something you wake up in the middle of the night. You got three ideas and it's like, all right, before I forget these, I want to make sure I get this down. So when we get back at training camp, we can hit these the right way. You know, that's all fun. That's all positive. But to me, it's, again, the biggest thing is vacation for my family kind of starts when we leave town. You know, that's when we kind of all can pull away and unplug and and just be a family.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way I've gotten better about it. I also know that if I have my cell phone with me, there's no chance I can truly unplug. I was pretty good about, we just got back my fiance and I from vacation. And the best ability for me to unplug was, was leaving the phone away. But, you know, I, I really, uh, you know, we've gotten a chance to have some interaction more so over the last year. And I, you know, I've always talked about on this podcast, I'm a fan of coaches and I probably am about the thousandth person person to ask you this, but I do know for both of us as younger coaches being exposed to some great ones, you know, talk to me just real quickly about, you know, I've always talked about, you know, the mentorship from the Gruden family, from the Shanahan family, how fortunate, you know, you're a guy that, you know, two arguably of the best of all time, you know, in Coach Saban and Coach Belichick, what was that experience like as a young coach? And, and how do you feel like that set you up for the success that I really admired just watching the way you led your team in your first year with all the obstacles that we had to face as head coach? Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. the um, First off, it was unbelievable. You know, and I really valued every day I had with Coach and or Coach Belichick. I mean, every day I knew I was walking in and that something was going to happen that day that I had to learn from and carry forward if I wanted to do this, you know, as head coach. So every day I wanted to learn a lesson and, you know, that never failed me. I think the biggest things with those guys that I really took away, and I've said this before, but I worked for two guys who were, again, arguably too embraced to ever do this. And they really just reaffirmed everything I learned at a younger age. You can trace it back to the guys I played for in Wee, my high school coach, uh, my early coaches in college, and just everything tied back to the basics. You know, I, I went through with those guys for, you know, really the better part of over a decade. And I tell people all the time, they ask, you know, Sean's a little different with you because you're calling the plays in the game and you're so involved with the offensive side. And I'm a little bit different more in terms of just, I'm really working to manage the game. And, you know, obviously, the coordinators on either side of the ball, they call the plays. And early on, someone asked me, how are you going to go through a game and not be the one calling the plays? And all I can think backwards, well, the last two guys I worked for, Belichick and Saban, you know, I worked 11 years combined for the two of them, mm-hmm. and they never called a single play. Wow. And but they were very instrumental in kind of how the game was played. And I really took a lot of notice into, you know, when they would chime over to your headset or ask you a question on the sideline or maybe have some you know, input. It was never more like, hey, Joe, call – this play, it was always, what are you thinking here? And then it was always followed by both of them with why. And, you know, it's something I try to take as head coach. Of like, I'm going to let the guys coach. I just want to know why. Like, what's the purpose? Before we go into the game, what are we thinking situation? What are we thinking in certain plays? You know, why do you want to use that course of attack? And if that doesn't work, what are we going to do as a counter to be successful? I mean, I can remember, you know, being on a headset and hearing save and coach tackling the entire game you know, for, you know, having Belichick go over and talk to the offensive line about pad level. Hmm. And all well, things you kind of just take up and notice, and it's that's really the most important thing. It's not like they're not getting coached from the position, coaches, and coordinators on the technique and scheme. It's just get the fundamentals down. You know, I remember when I took the job when I um, when was saving, and me and him sat down, and the interview stories, okay, they're all the stories themselves, and, you know, kind of differently, kind of wonder what kind of psychological warfare you're going through in the interview to see how much I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, but I remember when Coach Saban offered me a job, the one thing he talked about was developing coaches. It was actually the first time in my life I heard someone talk about that. He was saying, hey, listen, if you come here, really the money wasn't much anything, but the opportunity is to come here and learn and work on the staff. And the better you do, the more responsibility it will give you. And he kept talking about developing coaches, developing coaches. And that was something that really interested me. I'll go there and I'll work, but I know I'll come out and prove. And then when I worked in New England, you know, the coach didn't talk about it as much. You know, he didn't go out of his way all the time and just explain everything he was doing. But you could see Bill was always putting us in positions to do new things and grow. And mm-hmm. when you did something, again, if you were successful, they gave you more on your plate. And you just kept working and working and working. But the development with the two of them was always something they are putting in successful. I mean, I can remember being there with my first spring, Sean. I've been in pro ball for like three weeks of this. Film. I joined right before OTAs. You know, I'm cramming every morning from like five to seven o'clock going through the playbook, just thinking, whatever we got going in today, I can't screw this up. I've got to have every detail, every answer, any player ask me a question, they got to know I'm not going to get the wrong answer. And, you know, we're in the second week of OTAs and all of a sudden we're in a meeting and, and coach is like, all right, let's just go ahead and split the special teams up today and kind of almost have a, a scrimmage. Now we're talking OTAs and we're talking there's no contact. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when you you have to have a punt team and a punt return team, it's really all was punk versus punt return when the offense and defense are going. And you kind of look back after the fact and you're like, I had nothing to do with the players. He was trying to see like this new guy, could I control the players? Can I organize the team? You know, was I going to sink or swim? And, you know, he was looking for the impression I was going to make early on in spring. Okay, here's this new guy. Can he handle the responsibility? We're looking to set him up for it down the line. So that was something you kind of start taking notice with coach the whole time. If he'd give you something, And you just go ahead and run with it and develop it. You know, one of the things he did for me early on is when I first became the special teams coordinator, he put me over all the player development as well. Yeah. The rookie players and leadership development and all that stuff. And the first thought that goes across your head is, man, I've got a thousand things on my plate. last thing I need to do is, you know, design a rookie program and go through this and, you know, new player orientation throughout the season. And then you realize that you really learn how to get more of a beat on the culture of the team and develop (laughs) a team And you're spending more time doing everything but the X's and O's. At the same time, you're balancing that with doing the X's and O's of being a coordinator on the side of the ball. And that really helped just my development in terms of just being able to walk into different rooms and see the big pictures you go in. That there is the football aspect, but along with that, it's all the program development that comes with it. And I had the opportunity to do that for five seasons, you know, under him. And that was just huge for my development. I mean, it was tremendous. Being able to go through every player that came in the building, I got to kind of be the you know first face they got to deal with, and you know look you get rookies and they kind of sit in the seat and they're wide eyed and a little bit scared by some of the things you're telling me. You got vets that are looking at you like you're half crazy. I think what's this guy talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, what's this guy talking about? You know social media and, or you know how how you know how to handle certain things off the field. And You know you kind of go through the whole thing and you learn that you know managing different personalities, young guys coming in, old vets coming from other teams, uh, different position groups. And that really helped me along with coaching the special teams of learning, like you walk in a room, this time of year, it's 90 guys, eventually it's going to get down to 53 plus practice squad. So you learn to walk in a room and it's like, how do I touch everybody every day when I need to get something done? How do I get that message across in as many ways as possible, but how do everyone really hear it the same way?
0: So here's a question for you. You kind of touched on it a little bit, Joe you know, you're going through the interview process with Nick Saban and you had to be, you know, if you were with he and Bill for 11 years, I mean, you had to be what, 31 years old when you were probably interviewing with coach. Sa- I mean, this was what, almost 10 years ago now, right? Or One thing I was
1: 26, 26 All right. yeah, 27, It was 27 years old.
0: So t- take me through what that interview looks like. How you I got mean, the
4: interview? I want to know. I mean, that's uh, where does that come from?
0: Give me, give me the best parts about that. Where you're thinking, oh shit, here we go, man. I'm going with Nick Saban. I'm going to win that job. Probably <laughs> the same way you knocked the Giants' interview out. I got to hear. Take me through that process.
1: So the whole thing with with that interview was, you know, a lot like these other jobs. Is I've actually never gotten a job I've applied for. And I applied for a thousand, uh, made a million phone calls. <laughs> I've banged good. on every door I can bang on. And the funny thing it always comes back to is I've never gotten a job where I've initiated contact, you know, wow. but, but somehow, you know, when somebody knows who you are and you've done a good job and impressed it, impressed them, that's opened the door here or there. So I'm coaching at Birmingham. So I GA for three years. I got done playing in Mississippi State. Um, time out,
4: time out. Birmingham Southern. Go on. I yeah. don't know what that is. Explain I'm not being disrespectful. I just don't know that program. Is that division one? What is that?
1: It's division three. It's a, a small little large school in, in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a tremendous school. Um, it was actually, I was there, it was the second year they ever had football. Eddie Garfinkel was the defensive coordinator. Eddie took over. Uh, I was in between GA and having to find a real job. So I was kind of kicked out of the nest to the three years of the GA. It's, you know, me, my wife, and our son, and she's teaching in West Point High School, Mississippi. I'm trying to do anything I can to find a job. Uh, I actually took a job very briefly at West Point, you know, school district. And, you know, it was short lived, but I was coaching football and uh, I was actually working the kindergarten PE class. And, uh, you know, one day my phone rang. I had met Eddie actually in passing. I'd flown out of Birmingham to interview somewhere else for a job that I didn't get. And the strength coach over there was a friend of mine. We had actually been at Mississippi State prior to that, a guy named Justin Schwinn. And I met Eddie while I was basically eating lunch, waiting for a flight when we got out of there. My phone rang. I'm on a couch, exhausted, and Eddie said, "Hey, do you want this job?" And I said, "Yes, I do." So I take the job. Um, look, it was a it was a great experience. It was really a great experience. I had a year to run my room, and to be honest with you, on that level, you wear a lot of hats.
4: What was the job, Joe? What was it? was it? The coordinator?
1: What were you? So I was a linebackers coach, special teams coordinator. Uh, I was the video coordinator, worked with academics. You know, we did everything on, on equipment, lined the fields, you know, washed uniforms after games.
4: Division three. Division
1: three. You do everything. What a
0: perspective.
1: You know what I think too, Peter,
0: like to, to Joe's point, and that's where sometimes I'm embarrassed about how lucky I was because of really the platform and kind of the path that my grandfather set out making such a good impression on people in this league. But what I think sometimes we get spoiled as, as pro coaches Some of the best coaches I've been around are my high school coaches, some of these college coaches, because, you know, Joe always touches on – being fundamentally, you know, sound and not beating yourself, and I think that's part of the influence, whether it's Sabin, Belichick, him building his own philosophy, but you know, you talk about having to really teach guys from square one, alright, hey, let's just get into the right stance, how are we taking a snap from underneath the center, alright, what what type of, you know, depth are we aligning? where are we stacking as a second-level linebacker, all the intricacies, where do we want to start off off bump technique, how do we want to play bump technique, how do we mm. want to play off man, like, all those things, there's so many of these fundamental things, things that you take for granted as a coach. And I would argue that some of these guys at the foundational levels are the ones that are forced to really understand and own everything. That's all encompassing to building the foundation the right way, not to mention lining in the field, doing the video yeah.
1: thing. I mean, Hey, the more you can do right coach judge. I'll tell you part of that stuff that you really learned too, by having to do everything. It's amazing how many times you come across people at different levels yeah. And all of a sudden, you may have to go ask the video guy to do something. They kind of look at you like, well, this can't be done. And you can say, no, no, no. All you got to do is, you know, make this kind of copy, link this, put this wire here. And they stare at you and it's like, yeah, I've done that job. You know, or <laughs> when you start talking to you know, something with the field, and you say like, listen, it's not that complicated. Just go get that chalk paint. We'll brush it off when we're done. Go with it. Like we used to we're line up, are keeping everybody to accountable with the New York Football Giants, baby. Nothing's
0: getting by these. Guys. You know,
1: so you kind of learn all that stuff along the way. But that was a great experience. And to be honest with you, I got for a year, I got to screw up everything. Yeah, yeah, and learn from it. And you know, I was in such a small stage at the time, and they're a much better team now than we were then. And the program's really doing a good thing in Division Three. Um, but I screwed up everything, and no one noticed. And it was probably the best thing for me. You know, that I went in there and, you know, got done GA and I thought I had every answer. And you go in there and it's like, man, the amount of stuff I screwed up and I learned from my players of dealing with them throughout the course of a year in all aspects, you know, in the time management, you had to learn by doing all those different tasks. You know, it really helped me. And then randomly one day I'm sitting there and the phone rings and, uh, you know, Alabama's looking for a young special teams guy to come in and work with the special teams. And there was a guy who was there named Sal Sanceri. He's actually back there now. And yeah. Sal was kind of put in charge of helping find this young guy. And he called a guy named Amos Jones, who's on our staff now. I GA'd and play for Amos Mississippi State. And Amos called me up and he said, hey, Alabama's looking for a young special teams guy. They're going to call you in the next 10 minutes. Answer your phone. Mm. Talked to Sal. I was on the phone with Bobby Williams, who was doing the coordinator spot at that point in Alabama. You know, hey, they set up an interview. I went on down there. And then the next day I interviewed with, you know, a large portion of staff, saving for a while. And then I was off for the job the next morning. But the interview itself, you know, you go in there and you're with half the coaches on the staff. And I remember they were going through the special teams cut-ups and it was in, uh, this is in March. So they just come out of recruiting. They're getting ready to like self-scout from the previous year. They are doing the fourth quarter program at the time. And I'm sitting there with all the coaches and he just, we're watching their punt return. I remember and He just said, okay, tell me what you look for in punt return when you're breaking down someone's opponent." And I just kind of started going through well, it all starts with a long snapper. First thing I want to do is see, you know, snap tempo keys, can protect. You know, then I'm checking different spots and look at the operation in front. Of so I was going through a whole checklist of what we look at. And he's listening. We're kind of going through it. And we talk for a while. And then finally, you know, he kind of looks at all the coaches. He goes, All right, once you guys are the fourth quarter program, yeah, I gotta talk to this guy. And I'm like, damn, this guy. Like, I thought we were better now. We were better. <laughs> he's like, All right, so. You know, we get on the, we get on the board and I sit there and, you know, it's me and him, you know, like every special teams interview, what phase do you talk about, Sean? Punk. No doubt. All the head coach cares about is teach me punt. He's right. You walk in there and he goes, all right, teach me punt protection. And I get on the grease board and now look, I'm, I'm dressed. I'm wearing whatever my best slacks for the day, what I score coat on. I just bought a new tie and all buttoned up. And, you know, I start drawing and he just goes, I'll be right back. And he walks out. And, you know, we're in the staff room down there. Sean, you been a staff room in Alabama?
0: I haven't. I haven't been in that staff room.
1: It's a decent sized rectangular room. He's got a door to his office on the far end. And I'm, I'm standing there and I'm sitting there holding this expo. And I'm thinking, all right, when's he coming back in? And five minutes goes by. He's not back. Ten minutes goes by. He's not back. And finally, I'm sitting there. I'm like, all right, well, here's the deal. I'm not sitting down. There's no way this guy's walking <laughs> yeah. back. I'm not ready to go. So I'm just standing next to him. I love that. So, like, 25 minutes goes by. My palms are sweaty. I'm sitting there. <laughs> with my on. And he walks back in. Now, he walks in with some guy, all right, who I've never seen before and haven't seen since. So, I don't even know who the guy is. But He walks in, and it's like the Muppet hecklers. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy and Saban just sit there and basically are making fun of how I'm dressed. You know? Oh, my God. And I'm sitting there the whole time, but I'm just looking, I'm going, like, You know, I've been, I've cut up enough in the schoolyards. Like I know what you're doing. You want to see if I'm going to blink as you bust my balls. Like I ain't doing that.
4: Stadler and Waldorf. Here we go.
1: Yeah. So I'm like, all right. So I'm just smiling on through it. That don't bother me. And then at the end of it, we just had to talk ball, talking ball to me. I mean, I never get nervous talking ball. It's just doing something to love. It's, you know, it's like telling someone your phone number, right? I mean, you know it. So, you know, I get on the board, we draw on through it. We go through it. He's, I guess I don't screw it up that badly. So we sit back down and we go through it. And Nick, who I love to death, but you know, he sits there and he's like, you know, all right. So we get through. He kicks the other guy out and he goes, so what do you want to do?
4: Yeah.
1: And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I'd like to sit in your chair. He goes, I know that. Like, but what do you want to do? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, well, I want to be the best damn special teams coach that you've ever had on your staff. And he's like, okay. Well, how do you plan on doing that? And I'm like, am I shut my mouth and learning and figuring it out and? You know, coach now, you want to coach. And he's like, okay. And then we went up to the fourth quarter program and I watched those guys run around and, and you know, move around and was very impressed with just how it was a giant machine. Everyone knew yeah. where to go, yeah. how to operate. It was very, you know, there's a thousand things going on, but it's efficient. Everyone's moving, everyone's getting coached, everyone's working. And, you know, there's no time to slow down and talk through things. Like they'll talk later in the meetings, everyone's going. And we're walking out and talking to the strength coach, Scott Cochran, who's at Georgia now. And you know, Scott was kind of, you know, you know, just checking me out a little bit for the head man and you sure you want to do this, this is where you want to be. And I'm looking around thinking, I've got to learn this. Like, this is how I want to do things. Yeah, like, I don't yeah. know I, do. I want to learn how to do the system of all these multiples operating so efficiently. This is what I have to learn to do. And the next morning I was driving uh, my children to daycare, actually on the way to work it was a Friday morning and they're screaming in the back and the phone rings and you know, it always comes up as, you know, you know, blocked call or private call, whatever it is. Yeah. So I think it's got to be someone important. So I answer and it's him. and My kids are screaming so loud in the background. I pull over the side of the road and I get out and I'm standing on, you know, you know, the side of the highway, actually, and I'm sitting there and he's offering a job and we're talking on through it. But he kept talking over and over about developing coaches, developing coaches. So that was it, you know, and working for him was a great education. One thing he was great on was he explained all the why the entire time he got it. Yeah. Staff and we sat and you'd go through a number of different things, but ultimately, you knew what you were doing, but why you were doing it. And he was very clear on like, it has to be done this way because this is the purpose. And you know, that's something I kind of carry over. I talk, I want to talk to the players, it's, it's going to be hard, but if you explain to them why, everyone's easy to go through it with and they understand there's the a purpose, you're not just doing that because I said so.
3: Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer.
2: This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, you want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.
4: All right. So you're a division three coach. You get hired by Saban. You have this amazing success with him. How does the Belichick leap happen? How do you get from Alabama to then go to the NFL's crown franchise uh, or crown jewel franchise of this generation?
1: So there's a guy named Scott O'Brien who was coaching special teams at the time. And Scottio was very close to saving. And anytime we really had questions on special teams, how to handle something, you know, he'd always say, why don't you give Scotty a call and kind of see what it is. So we had a rapport and at least, you know, we we're able to talk all with each other and, you know They were looking for a coach, looking for an assistant, and they called down and, you know, and said, hey, would that Joe Judge guy, would he be interested to in come up and be an assistant special teams coach if we hired him? So this was 2011. No, sorry, 2000, going into the 11th season, so it was spring. And that was the year of the lockout. Mm. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'd go up there, let's go interview for it. And I kind of got squashed because it was a lockout. No one was hiring anybody. Yeah. It wasn't going to happen. We went through the season at 11, and I win the national title. And in December that year, I got a phone call from Ellis Johnson and Ellis. I played for Ellis and GA for him at Mississippi state and very good relationship. He's a a great friend of mine. And he called me and said, Hey, I'm going to interview for this job at Southern Miss. Would you get some coming down as being the coordinator? And I'm like, you know what? It's about that time, you know, and I don't really want to leave Tuscaloosa. However, this is a great opportunity working for a great friend. It's a great place. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take this. I take the job and down there, we get through recruiting. Actually, we win the national title on, I want to say it was January 11th. And on January 12th, I'm in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I drive right from New Orleans, straight to Hattiesburg, start working. We go through recruiting. We do the whole thing. They play the Super Bowl. Giants beat the Patriots. The next morning, I'm in my office. Excuse me. It's like, uh, no, 7.30 in the morning. All right. I'm in the morning away.
4: after the Super Bowl.
1: Morning after the Super Bowl. My phone rings. Scott, Scott O'Brien hey, would you be interested in this job up here? And I was like, you know what? The answer is yes, I would. However, I just took this job with Ellis. He gave me an opportunity. I really don't want to leave him. So he said, okay, well, let me see what's going on here. Calls me back like two days later. He says, hey, listen, we're probably not going to hire someone this year. We'll hire someone after the season. Yep. So why don't you just hang for and, uh, you know, work, and we'll know where to find you. Great. We go through spring ball, and it's now – it's actually the week of the draft, or the week before the draft. Phone rings. It's Ellis Johnson, and he says, "Hey, have you talked to Belichick?" And I said, "Well, they called me back, and you know, after the Super Bowl about this job, I told them thanks, but no thanks. That I was here, and I was working." He goes, "Well, I told him you'll be up to interview on uh, Monday," and I was like, "Interview on Monday?" And Ellis said, "Yeah." He goes, "Look, if he goes, I think it's a great opportunity." He goes, "I'm not trying to push you out of here." He goes, "But I think you know you need to go meet some people." And he looked wow. at me, and said, oh, "He goes, I might only do this career for another seven, eight more years." He said, you got to go meet some other people. He said, so go up there, interview if you like it. Great. If you want to take it? Take it. If not, you should met someone. Maybe impress Ellis someone.
0: Johnson, what a dude. No question.
1: That's, and that's honestly, I've taken that approach with everybody on my staff when something comes their way. And I always think it's not fair for me to limit their opportunities when someone did the opposite for me. <laughs> I went up there. I interviewed. Um, I actually spent about 12, 13 hours in a room just me and Scott O'Brien uh, one day. We got there, you know, with Scotty, it's kind of like things start early. So it's like I'll pick up at the hotel at 5 a.m., you know, at 5 30, me and him were drinking coffee and we're on the board and we talked all day. Mm. And then I went in and met and then met with Bill. And uh that was kind of another deal. It's kind of very similar to the next story, but the complete opposite of the spectrum. You know, I go in there and I'm talking to him. And as I'm talking to Bill in the middle of conversation, he stands up and he takes his shirt off. I'm just looking at him like, what's this guy doing? I'm thinking, is this more of those head games right there? Is he just trying to? And we're full engaged in the interview, talking about personnel reviews and scouting, all sorts of stuff. He's taking his shirt off and he's like, all right, yeah. And then he walks behind the corner and he comes out, he's got different pants on as we're talking. (laughs) What is going on here? And at the time, I'm thinking, this guy's just playing head games, same thing, trying to see if I'm going to blink. I'm kind of like, look, I've already lived through that, buddy. I'm all (laughs) right on this. But if you know Bill, it's like, no, he's just a thousand things going on. He had to go to some dinner that night. And he's like, I got to get ready while I'm talking to this guy. I already know I'm offering the job. You know, I've got to get some things done. So we end up talking on through it. He kind of just left it as, hey, listen, we get the draft this week. I'll give you a call, you know, on Wednesday. He actually called me back on Sunday after the draft. Wow. And long story short, it was a deal where, you know, he offered a job and we went up there. And it couldn't have been more appreciative for the opportunity. And I come to the more appreciate Ellis Johnson for, you know, having that perspective of saying, like, look, go take the interview. If you don't like it, don't take it, but this is a good opportunity for you. Uh, I was always very, you know, appreciative of that. And I try to go ahead and pay that forward when I can.
0: It's funny, Peter, listening to to Joe talk about it. This is eerily similar to the opportunity that I got in Washington because you hear Joe talk about his foundational philosophy, special teams wise, when he's, you know, he probably already had a core beliefs. And then when you go to Alabama, there's a similar foundational philosophy that they operate with that is a little bit different than the standard, you know, uh, operating procedures or some of the things that you see reflected around the league. And that was probably really instrumental in the continuity that you had with Scotty being able to talk to him, Joe, and then being able to, with Bill, with the continuity they've had, where you're speaking the same language, very similar to both me and Kyle Shanahan working under John Gruden. Mm. And then we're talking the same you know, kind of language and it was a really seamless transition. How much do you think that played into just how seamless that was and the confidence that, Hey, if Nick signs off on this guy, I know they're doing the things the right way. I can see the tape shows up and then let's see if he can articulate and echo what I'm seeing on the film. I mean, that had to be pretty seamless for you transition wise, just in terms of the schematic approach in and of itself.
1: One thing I I really take from that, which I know happened behind the scenes, because I know that, you know, Saban called him and said, you know, or at least when he was called said, this is a guy that can do it for you. Give him an opportunity. Um, without ever telling me that I knew we did that. And one thing I've taken with hiring my own staff, to be honest with you, is the same kind of principle. You know, I want people that speak my language and that's, you know, in the actual verbiage, but then also in terms of how we see it philosophically. Look, Our our culture and our building is not the same as everywhere else. That's fine. We do do things differently. I understand it's not the easiest way. It's not meant to be an easy program, but if you love ball, if you see it the way we see it in terms of, you know, being able to put the hours in and truly grind through it and race and enjoy the work part of it, then you'll do fine. So getting those guys in that fit that mold, you know, really helps me.
4: When you were there in New England, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. It's Matt Patricia, it's Josh McDaniels, it's Brian Flores, uh, Brian Dayball, you list the guys. How do you stand out? How do you, cause I mean, I know what Bill does. It's, you got, look, as great as Gerard Mayo or Steve Belichick might be, Bill's not waxing poetic about them publicly by any means. So how do you guys stand out internally and make a name for yourself in front of Belichick that ultimately sets you up for that next level?
1: I think you just do everything he gives you to a high level. And I never saw this competing against Josh or Matt or Flo or, you know, Dante Skarnacki and any of those great coaches that were in there. To me, it was just, just do whatever he asks you at the highest level. You know, that building very much like Tuscaloosa. I think the thing you were trying to do was not stand out. You didn't want to be the weak link. <laughs> you know, you didn't want to be someone who could just, when he said to get something done, he never had to look your way again. No one had to worry, is your unit going to be coached the right way? You didn't want the rest of the coaching staff thinking like, oh, no, what, what's Joe doing? You know, I never want to be the weak link. So I think you're kind of motivated, you know, by your greatest fear. And our fear was failure. So, you know, none of us wanted to fail. We helped each other. We pushed each other. But at the end of the day, you didn't want to be the one who stood out. Yeah. You
4: know. Winning winning is always fun, but you know, from the outside and it sounds so naive of me, is it a fun place to coach? I mean, I know he's tough and it's disciplined in the Patriot way. Is it a fun experience being up there because I feel yeah. like you've got Cliff in Arizona, it's a little loosey-goose. You got some other places where it seems New England doesn't seem like it's all jollies.
1: all right so I'll, I'll tell a real quick story and I know a lot of stuff you know, doesn't always get out. Um yeah, you know, we went through the whole thing coming out of like 2017. There's a lot of noise in the offseason about, you know, is it fun here? It's tough. It's this, it's that. And, uh,
0: and you followed it up by ruining my life by beating me in the Super Bowl. Thanks a lot.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go ahead, Coach. Sorry to interrupt you.
1: No. One of my all-time favorite people in the world and all-time favorite players I'll ever be around is Edelman And Jules made you a better coach because every day he challenged. Every day. Mm. Like, when you'd walk into coaching, it was, it was like you were walking into a fight every day. And you knew he was going to check you somehow. Uh, he it made you a better coach. You know, this dude was relentless and competitive, but he wanted you to know that he was an expert in his field and he wanted to make sure you were too. Mm. But when we came out of that whole deal in 17 with kind of like, you know, the outside, oh, it's not fun, it's this, it's that. I remember Julian, he had a four game suspension, if you remember, in 18. I remember he sure. walked in from the suspension. We had this white grease board and, you know, his monitor is all over the building. So you don't have to really write anything, but there's a white grease board on the wall and it was blank. And everyone knew who wrote it. He walked in, he wrote in the middle of the board, winning is fun. And it was something I think everyone read as they walked in every day, knowing who it came from, the guy who outworks everybody, mm-hmm. the guy who does everything he can to compete and win, and you know how much this guy loved the game. And he just kind of spread the message to the entire team of kind of like, hey, guys, you want to have fun? Like winning's fun. We do everything we can to win here. But I'm going to be honest with you. I had more fun in those eight years than I've ever had with the game ever. Mm. It doesn't mean it's not tough. It doesn't mean it's not demanding. But the team culture in those locker rooms, the enjoyment you genuinely have seeing someone else succeed, the smiles, the hugs, but, you know, you would think, like, what's, what's the fun of coaching? The fun for me is being able to help somebody else go out and execute something that they can have success. And you know, those players do everything they're coached to do. They understand, like, that's their job. You know, coaches coach and players play. And they're fun. And they're good dudes. And the culture's good. And I know on the outside, that's hey, it's doom or gloom, right? That, yeah. That's not the reality inside. It's not. And those guys were tons of fun to coach. Now, like, look, it's going to be very, very demanding. And it's going to be tough. And you're going to be held accountable. Okay? I can remember sitting and staying in squad meetings. And having my job threatened from the entire team. But you know what the cool thing about those guys were? When your back was against the ropes, they all responded you. <laughs> like they all came to town. I and mean, look, we played the Chiefs in 2018. We didn't cover kicks that effectively. Okay? That's me. That's my unit. I let the team down. We didn't do the job because I didn't prepare the well enough. That's reality. If my guys don't play well enough, I didn't coach well enough. And I can remember going in after that game, and it was just told very, very clearly. If we don't do this better, there's going to be changes. And I can remember going through that week and, you know, you had a lot of guys in that locker room, who had each other's backs, players, coaches, everyone, everyone banded together. And we actually ended up going to Chicago on the road the next week and you know, played a heck of a game, scored two touchdowns and the kicking Court, game. Cordero Daryl Patterson, I remember. Yeah, CP had it. We blocked a punt for a touchdown. We did some other things. They were a really good team. They were a tough team. And, you know, it took the entire team, all three phases, but it was one of those deals where after the game, those core guys, the entire team rallied around those guys. You can see them in the locker room, the hugs and the joy and the excitement of those guys. So, again, is it demanding? It's absolutely demanding. Is it stressful? Yeah, it's supposed to be stressful. if we get paid very, very well to do something at the highest level. Mm. So it should be done at the highest level. I mean, look, if we went to Cirque du Soleil and all falling off the trapeze, like, that's not going to be much fun for the fans <laughs> a lot, right? That wouldn't be Cirque du Soleil then, would it? <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it's... It's supposed to have an expectation, and it's supposed to be demanding. But, you know, to go back to the original part of it, did I have fun in New England? Absolutely. And you know what? I'm having fun every day with our guys in New York. I really am. And they love ball. They come to work. They're fun to be around. You know, I I had as much fun as you can imagine last year, and as as ridiculous as it sounds, and Sean, you were on the other side of it. and we started off, we were 0-5 and and then 1-7, and we were outside, in torrential downpours and practices in cold rain you know, it was miserable. And while everything on the outside might, may have seemed like, Oh, this is going to be terrible for this team. When are they going to splinter fracture and break apart? Those guys came to work every day. They did everything we asked them. They smiled, they responded, they competed, they supported each other. They took coaching and they could see the improvement as a season went.
0: Yeah. And I think it showed too, Peter, one of the things that, you know, just watching from afar, and and I've referenced this a lot on on this uh this podcast, and, and Joe, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but you know, there's a commitment to a philosophy, but when you talk about watching the way guys handle the ebbs and flows of a season. The thing to me that says as much about your leadership that I was so impressed with from afar is you talk about starting off slow and then I remember watching this Monday night game against, you know, the the, the yeah, Super Bowl but, champs yeah. and you guys take them wire to wire and you can really see there's a lot of good stuff going on and I, you know, I don't care what the record says. I see, you know, I'm watching the tape, I'm watching the way guys are competing. I'm watching the way Guys are communicating together. They're doing sound things in all three phases. You you finish watching that game and you say, I don't care what the record says. The Giants are coming. They're going to compete. They're going to be situationally aware. They're going to know exactly how to play fundamentally sound. And these guys are relentless in the way that they compete. And I've heard you talk about it. Then you reel off four straight wins. You get yourself in the division race just because of the ebbs and flows of the way that it went. And then you have a tough stretch, but to finish the way you did winning that last game against the Cowboys, I just thought I saw a team get better. And I've always watched from afar. I think the teams that are the best coach are the ones that show improvement. And that might not always be reflected in what the record actually shows. But hey, what do you seeing? snap in and snap out that's reflective of? When I put the tape on, that's our resume, and I thought, you know, kudos to you for that. And, uh, you know, I just have an appreciation for the commitment to a philosophy that I remember hearing you talk about in your opening press conference. You see the consistency throughout the year, especially navigating through the things that we had to with just COVID as a first-year head coach. And I, I was really impressed by that. So kudos to you on that, man.
1: I appreciate it. You know, it's our players last year did a great job, you know, committing through all the stuff last season. Um, but they did everything we asked them to. And, you know, where they practice hard this spring, we had them, you know, I'm anxious right now to get back in the training camp and be going with them. I really i am really excited about this group. Uh, they're fun to coach.
4: Joe, I, I can't go out in New York City or New York proper, New Jersey, without someone coming up to me and saying, Giants, Giants look pretty good, uh, Giants. I, th- this is a moment for a Giants fan who has been waiting years for this type of offseason where there's expectations of, Hey, we brought in Galladay. We got this great draft pick. Hey, I like the second round pick out of Georgia. Like everyone is stopping me to talk about it. I can only imagine what you're getting where you live. And yet I think it all comes down to the quarterback without getting too much into the typical Daniel Jones. Like I think this kid and Sean, you tell me what you've watched when healthy is tough, smart, and can throw the ball a mile. Is it okay to be excited about Daniel Jones as he goes into this season? And knowing what you know now, being with him for more than 12 months, do you feel good about the quarterback heading into 2021?
1: Yeah, I'm always excited about working with Daniel. I really am. And this guy's, he's had a really good off-season for us. Um, But I thought Daniel grew a lot last year. And there's no excuses for anything. Everyone had the same obstacles. But, you know, I thought Daniel going into a new offense last year without a spring, without really a training camp, without preseason games... There were some things that he had to adjust to within the season. And as the team improved, he was a huge part of it. One thing about this guy that you know, I can't say enough is how everyone responds to him.
4: Good.
1: You know, This is a guy that I didn't know before I took the job. I didn't, which is why I was so reserved in making comments about him. It wasn't fair to him. And the more I've got to know him, and really you get to know him to watch him work. But this guy is a leader. And this is a guy that when he steps in the huddle, the guys respond to You know, offensively and defensively, these guys all respond to him. He is tough. You know, there's no hide, man. The team knows when he's got to play through some bad injuries. And this guy's, he's a tough dude. And he works relentlessly. And I think you talk about leadership. It's, you know, one, you got to do your job effectively. No one's going to follow someone who can't do their job effectively. Number two, got to put the team first, man. He shows really how he works inside the building and on the field. Stuff with the team away from the facility. That he's putting the team first in everything he's doing. I'm very pleased with the leadership he's you know taken on this year. Uh, you know he's really growing you know as a player, as a professional. But you know, this guy's a lot of fun to be around. And one of my favorite things to do to be honest with you, is sit down there with him on you know Monday afternoons or Tuesday afternoons when he's breaking up the next opponent and you just ask him, what are you seeing? You know, I want to see through that quarterback's lens what's he seeing? What does he see as something that he thinks he can make a play on? You know, what does he think about the opponent's DBs? you know what's he think about our matchups it says a lot you don't know what those players are thinking but you know he was the first first player that came and knocked on my door when I took the job I saw some guys today I was kind of walking on silly the, the first day guys on the locker room, waiting stuff. and stuff but you know that second day I walked in there and there he is you know sitting outside my office waiting to come in and have a conversation and talk that's what you want
0: Yeah. I I think what says as much about him as anything is, you know, those who know, know, and there's nobody that's better in tune with it than the players that are in the building, the coaches day in and day out. And when you hear the support from the people that are around him, that's what gives you confidence. You know, you touched on it a little bit there, Joe, I'd be interested, you know, as a, you know, a kind of a, head coach that's overseeing you're involved in all three phases you're overseeing it without you know give it give me a little insight into what your weekly rhythm looks like you know you talked about being able to spend some time with Daniel as he's getting into the early phases of his prep sounds similar to kind of probably what Bill and Tom did but how did you take you know being around Nick being around Bill and then you know putting your own spin on it but then you know having that weekly rhythm that's in alignment with your process and your preparation.
1: Look, for me, it's important to always work ahead. And that's something, you know, you got to do in the kicking game. You're always at least a week ahead. You know, the way I approach it is, you know, I'm on the next opponent, you know, come Thursday night, Friday morning. Uh, at least going through some cut-ups and some early introductions that when we get to that next week, you know, when we get through, you know, Monday night and Tuesday, all coach the coaches game plan around, you know, midday Tuesday. I want to really have a mastery on the opponent. So when I sit down with the coordinators and say, okay, what are your thoughts on playing this game? How do you see this game? you know, not just what play you want to call, but what's the flow, the tempo, you know, personnel groups, players, features, how you want to go in and handle this. I want to make sure as they're talking, I've seen what they're seeing, you know. So to me, it's a lot of work in the head, you know, starting out with, you know, the kicking game guy. I always try to knock out the kicking game, you know, Thursday, the week before. And then, you know, between Friday and Saturday, watch their offense and defensive cutoffs. Now you can't watch everything, right. but you can watch enough to know, like, what do they do well? You know, how are they making their plays? You know, we're watching the Rams' offense. You know, where their explosive plays come from. You know, how are they scoring touchdowns? You know, what are they doing that give opponents problems? Like, right, let's get a figure on that. How, how can we approach that? You know, defensively. Okay, who's making their plays? How are they making them? So, at least giving a flow and an idea of going and to coordinators of like, okay, you're playing Denver. I mean, you open Denver. It's no secret. I'm not going to shatter the earth here. But, all right, how are we blocking Von Miller? You know, how do we account for that? Pretty good. Like, how are we going to start off before we talk about plays? Like, let's talk about the player. Like, how do we account for that? Do we have a plan for that? Are we just saying let's line up and just go ahead and go? Like, how do you see this here? To me, the best thing I can do is stay ahead that I'm not playing catch up on what the opponents are doing.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Peter, if you listen to any of Joe's press conferences leading up to the game, you know, and I felt this way when I, when we played against the Patriots, too. And, and Joe, you talk about an ownership on the opponent, whether it's the history of the game, knowing what's going on in all three phases, you know, that's reflected when you, you know, whether it was us getting ready for one another or when I'm just watching because I'm a fan of coaching. And, you know, I I think you can feel the players have to feel the command and the capacity. You can certainly feel it if you know what you're really looking for and you can see and you can feel. I've always told Peter, I respect the guys that put the work in and mm-hmm. you can feel that they're putting the work in based on the tangible amount of information, you know, that they're able to just seamlessly communicate similar to what you talked about, coach, where, hey, never really got nervous talking about ball. This is what we do. You're putting in the time. You got a confidence um, based on that time spending the people that you've been around. You know, the one thing that I'd be interested to ask as well for you is now going into year two, okay, because it was, you know, this was my first opportunity in LA. I had never been a head coach. Um, You know, this was your first head coaching job. You know, you always prepare and be yourself, you know, taking all those types of things. If you said, what's the one thing that until you really get in this seat, now I'm going to use what I learned in year one and I'm going to apply that, that I just wouldn't have known otherwise. Is there anything that stands out to you?
1: You know, I think you talk through situations all the time. You talk through the time management part of it. That, that to me, is the biggest contribution I can make in a game because I'm not going to call the offense, defense, or the specialist plays. So, to me, controlling the flow of the game, the situations, making sure we manage managing the right way, that, to me, was the biggest in-game curve. You know, I know sometimes, you know, quarters get stuck sometimes in just the specifics of what they're calling. You know, I'm trying to always bring them back to the bigger picture. You know, what's the tempo of the game? What's the tone? How's the other side of the ball playing? You know, is the defense struggling? The offense, may have to go ahead and adjust how we're playing the game to help the defense. Make sure we communicate that part of it. They're not always seeing the other side of the ball. Um, But to me, when you get in the moment and the way the multiples fly up, it's kind of the, you've done a flight simulator, but now you've got to forget. Yeah. So that to me was something that, you know, I know I improved on as a year went. Um, You know, you get more and more situations come up as the season goes on and you can handle them better. You know, to me, it's all about keeping the players and rhythm and in sync to go ahead and hit those things full speed. But, you know, that's something we have to do is be a good situational football team. That starts with being making sure we on the same page. Right?
0: What's, yeah. what's, give me one example of when he said, all right, man, I did a hell of a job here. And then one when you say, what was I thinking <laughs> in, in that moment? And I got to be better for our guys.
1: You know what? I got aggressive. i never really apologize for being you know, too aggressive, but there was a, there was a fourth down against the San Francisco 49ers and being, you know, early in game three, you watched it great. Thing yeah, in your game, you probably how's this guy doing? And we weren't playing with it. And I kind of came out of halftime and kind of told the team, like, we're going out there swinging, we're not going out there and you know, trying to just go ahead and lay on the ropes and get through this thing. And you know, it was a fourth down, and I made a decision to go for it, backed up far in our own territory, we got stopped and didn't get it. And uh, I look back at that in hindsight, was, okay, like sometimes the emotion gets you a little bit there, and I got to go ahead and stay clear headed and make sure I put our team. In the right situation, to go forward with it, and that wasn't the right decision at the time. Now, I got no problem going from a fourth down. I got no problem, you know, going for two in the situational aggressive stuff. But yeah, making sure you make the right decision at the right time for the team.
0: Yeah, it couldn't have been nearly as bad as my quick count in the tight red area where we left a defensive tackle free for an unabated sack to Goff. So (laughs) you you had me beat on that one. But now that's it. It is. It's interesting though, Peter, because I can tell you. You know, when you just watch and you're seeing guys from on the opposing sideline, the command and, hey, given Jason a heads up, hey, this is a four down situation. Sure. There's so many intricacies going on. And in a lot of instances to what Joe's talking about, when you are involved in the play calling element, yeah, as a head coach, you're ultimately responsible. But the way that I'm allocating my resources on game day is you've got somebody up top, that's kind of helping you with the clock management as far as the timeouts and more confirming. Now, in a lot of instances, you know, offensively, specific to those situations that occur at the end of the half and the end of the game, you know, you got to prepare both sides of the football and you got to have your special teams ready for the different scenarios that can come up. But a lot of those situations are in, you know, inevitably kind of dictated by the offense and then you're being ready defensively or you've got to anticipate possible decisions and so it does have a flow but it's amazing the amount of things that you know you got to oversee and you know it's uh I'm excited about uh you know moving forward because like I said I I just got a, a lot of respect for the consistent commitment to a philosophy and approach and you can see the stuff he talks about shows up on their film and that's the biggest compliment as you could give to another coach.
4: That's cool. Joe, I got, I got some quick hitters before we wrap with you, because I, I want to hit a couple things that are just fun. Uh, Tom Brady, you were with him for what? 11 yeah. years. How, just give me a good eight. Brady story.
1: Eight years. Yeah. Eight years. Um, I got a million Tom stories. Uh, dude, I'll tell you what now, like I can remember my first spring being there and like I had visited some other teams in the league. I'm not going to go out and talk about teams or players, but, you know, you watch these guys that are starting NFL quarterbacks throw the ball and they're doing seven on seven, a team where it is, and the balls on the ground or balls that come out clean or whatever it may be. I remember the first time watching Tom throw the ball in spring, OTA one, and we're doing, you know, seven on seven. Every ball he threw was perfect. Mm. And I remember when he was done, when he was done the period, I remember sitting there and I'm like, you know, like, all right, this guy, like, I obviously understand, you know, why he's a great player he goes over on the field by himself and he's sitting there and he's working all this hip movement and foot movement. And he's over like just breaking down one in cutting through <laughs> that was like, you know, top of the guy's helmet instead of being, you know, right there, you know, on his chin. And he's going over and over and over through it. And it's, I'm sitting there and I'm just listening to him talking with Josh and going through it. And I remember watching him throw about another 12 to 15 in cuts while he was waiting for the next period to get going. Yeah. And I remember th- sitting there just watching and going like, okay, that's the difference. I watched these other guys who just look like pedestrian. And, you know, for my first time seeing it, I'm thinking, no, this is perfect. And he's watching it you know, himself going, nope, screw that one play. I'm going to go ahead and hit as many as I can until the next period goes to correct that one play. And I thought that it was carried over in the way he played. And, uh, like, I had a tremendous amount of respect to Tom and everything he does on the field. I think the thing that sometimes people—I don't want to go ahead and speak for Tom or talk to Tom too much—but the thing that people don't understand, and I don't care how many books you read about him or you hear him talk about, you know, the whole process is when you watch what he actually has to put his body through to get ready for practice and get ready for games and to recover and stay healthy. Like the commitment he has to keeping his body able to play, like it's amazing. Yeah. It really, is. I mean, it's amazing watching him get his body worked on and his legs worked on and how he recovers and it's, it really is. And then in between periods, you know, look, it's, you're in the playoffs, it's January and it's in between periods and the defense is out there. And he's on the field next to it with the strength coach with bands around his waist, you know, run and pulling the strength coach, working mm-hmm. on get all starts and balance and all that stuff. And it's, it's a whole process he goes through. So, you know, to me, just the level of respect is I can talk over and over and over about, you know, the big wins and the performances and all that stuff. But ultimately, I always think about the results, but they're all the result of all things you don't see and how this guy works on a daily basis and the things he has to do to physically be right. And that's the thing I don't think a lot of these young players truly understand is how much work it takes just to be available on the field. Yep. You know, it's different in college. You just don't show up, eat a cheeseburger, get your ankles taped and go practice. You know, it's a whole process of taking care of your body.
0: Yeah. I can remember, Joe, when we practiced when I was in Washington and we practiced against each other before the 2014 season. And, Peter, this is something that whether it's watching Tom, but really just the entire operation, you talk about every single minute being accounted for, not wasting anything, the efficiency of the operation. You can really see... Whether it's Tom's process, but really the Patriots' overall operation in and of itself. It was pretty unique for me as a young coach, because that was my first year as a coordinator in Washington when Jay Gruden was first year as his head as the head coach there. And you know, I was a coordinator there for three years. And that preceded my first year as a as an offensive coordinator. And you're just watching the efficiency of the operation. In between periods, the way they transition, you get into the the move-the-ball settings. They got the communication set up. You watch the way that Joe's practicing with the special teams periods. You watch the way that guys are saying, all right, if it's not an offensive period or if there's a little bit of a lull, I can promise you what's going on. Tom's doing stuff with the bands or working those throws or they're doing a blitz pickup drill. That was the one thing to me that stood out where you're saying – you know, when you watch the way that they're preparing, when you get an inside look at it, that's different. And I think that's the consistency of anybody that's great at what they do, whether it's coaching or playing. There's a consistency. There's a commitment to a process. And all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes is just a byproduct of what you see these guys having and all that success that that Joe and Tom have shared in New England. And then you obviously see Tom and doing a great job. And it's uh, it's impressive. It really yeah. is.
4: Uh, and uh, I guess on behalf of Giants fans who are going to want to know what what was your reaction week seventeen, and you could just say I got no comment on this. The Eagles are up. If they win this game, who knows what happens? Maybe the Giants are going to, and then we see a quarterback substitution, and it doesn't go that way. What was your reaction watching at home?
1: That point was out of our hands. We, we could have handled it, you know, in the first seventeen weeks by you know winning games. That was it. Okay. uh,
4: Sean, what was your reaction? Same?
0: Uh, You know, what you respect about Joe is, 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 you know, he's going to take full accountability. Hey, it's not about what we can. And, And again, you know, there, there's a lot of things that go on. That's, it's uh, not not for the Rams or for the Giants. We just can handle and control what we can control.
4: Hey, I'll say this. When he's talking about the Buccaneers Monday night game, you better believe that was a pass interference call that was blown. I mean, I, I'm sorry, Joe. I grew up in New Jersey. This is just fair <laughs> stuff I'm saying here. I, I could complain. You don't have to. I could say it if I want to.
1: Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>
5: That's
4: good. Uh, I guess, I mean, as far as anything else, Sean, uh, I just love talking to Joe. I think he's the man. I think Giants fans are in such good hands. And uh, from one coach to another, do you have any final questions for our, our guest on this week of Flying Coach?
0: Well, yes, I, I got one final question. Peter's asked this to, to all of our guests, Joe. If you were saying, you know, hey, one word of advice you say to coaches, you know, they're getting into the business you know, through your journey that's, that's got you to this level. And, and what I love you, you talk about, Hey, this is an opportunity. This isn't the end goal. Now it's about earning the right to continue to do this at a high level, to lead, to make guys want to follow you and, and continue to build those relationships. What, what is your advice to, to coaches? If you were to say, all right, if, if you're going to take away one thing, this is the one piece of advice in my coaching journey that I would want you to take away.
1: I think in the journey, you know, there's so many things that to come up and, You've got to really be grateful for the opportunities that come your way. I said earlier, I've applied for thousands of jobs. I didn't get called back. Called back. To me, it's do a good job wherever you are. You know, wherever you are, if you do a good job, you know, ultimately it's not who you know; it's who knows you. Someone will take notice. And enjoy the work. Enjoy the coaching. Understand the value of what you're doing. If you're getting into this, make money. And look, we've been very, very fortunate by the opportunities we've had and been able to make good money. But look, I, I spent a lot of years broke. And my wife supported me through this for a long time, you know, teaching and, you know, taking out loans and whatever we had to do to kind of survive and get by. And, um, but you always have to enjoy the work because the hours are going to be long. If you're doing it right. The hours are going to be long. Don't complain about the hours. Enjoy the work and wherever you're at, you know, coach your butt off. Like the most important thing to you because it should be, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons coaching the Birmingham Southern for guys that, you know, look, they weren't as good a player as I'm coaching right now. That's not an insult. That's just a fact. Okay, that's a reality. But you know what? They played hard for me. You know, I was doing everything to come in there prepared and help them be a better player. And I still keep in touch with those guys all the time, and I value everything good for me. You know, I would probably learn more from those guys than I have a lot of the better players. You know, of how I can really reach someone, trying to help somebody maximize what they're doing. But if you think you're getting into coaching because it's going to be a quick avenue with something that's glamorous. Like, you're looking at the wrong part of it. You know, most of the stuff we do, you never see. It's long hours. You know, I walk around bagging my eyes all the time. They'll never, you know, get rid of those things. But just the way it is, you know, you got to enjoy not sleeping, enjoy breaking out a ton of tape, and enjoy, you know, working hours for one little nugget to give a player to help them. You know, so that would be my thing right there. It's just, you know, embrace where you're at, coach your butt off, and enjoy the work.
4: Joe, Outstanding. Did, when you are a kindergarten teacher teaching PE, and you're three years after did you ever think about quitting? Did you ever think about saying, I, I can't live this way? I can't, I can't afford to live this way. I need to provide. And I know a lot of coaches that email Sean and I on the show, they're like, Hey, I've been doing this for six or seven years at the high school level. And it's a passion, but at some point, you know, did you ever have
1: those doubts? I think it's natural that you have to at some point, have that conversation with yourself when, you know, I'm married, I have, you know, two, three children, depending on what time of my career I'm starting, I have four. And, you're kind of going through. All right, look, I'm calling these people. I can't even get them to pick a phone up. When's my opportunity going to happen? Actually, there was a time I was at Alabama. I had talked to Bobby April, who at the time was special teams coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles, and they had a job open. And I talked to Bobby down in the senior bowl. Someone recommended me, went through the whole thing talking. I remember it went to somebody else who was a damn good coach, and I didn't get the job. And you're kind of sitting there going through, like, you know, I can't catch a break. I don't understand what's going on. I'm in a great spot. I'm in Alabama. I'm not on great form. I'm learning doing great things. But you're sitting there thinking like, okay, at some point, I've got to catch a break. And I remember the phone rang just randomly one day, Bobby <laughs> April. And it was one of those days you're sitting there like, oh, I'm going to go home, you know, probably have to have a conversation with my wife and see, you know, you know, where we are with everything. And the phone rings, it's Bobby April. Hey, just want to let you know the job went to somebody else, but well, you need to stick with this, you do a great job. And I've always been very, very grateful. And sometimes, you know, it's a, you got to take the time as an older coach to turn around and point out to a younger guy when they're doing a good job because it's early in the career. It's very, very thankless. Um, you're working a lot of long hours and a lot of hard work. And sometimes it takes on pointing out that they notice you're making progress. So I always very, very grateful. And I've ever, ever told Bobby about that, but uh, that's something that, you know, really left an imprint with me. Uh, I'm very grateful for him taking 30 seconds out of his day you know one random one to call me up and just say hey thank you do a good job mm,
0: so. that's really cool i'll end with this having done both who should get paid more a kindergarten p.e. teacher or an nfl head coach great question
1: <laughs> well kindergarten p.e. teacher definitely going to come home more tired at the end of the night so <laughs> you know, we're going based on the end your level and the hours i go to kindergarten p.e. Okay. <laughs>
4: Good stuff, Joe. You're the man. We really appreciate it, dude. This was so great, and I hope you enjoyed it, too. And I know you're a busy man, and you're wired like Sean. You're always thinking football. But for you to take an hour out of your night and chat with us, it means the world to us. So just thank you for being on Flying Coach. It was really cool for us.
1: Guys, I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Uh, Peter, man, I'll talk to you soon. And Sean, good luck this season, and uh, we'll see each other pretty soon.
0: Yeah, sounds great. Good luck to you, except for when we play each other. (laughs) Yeah,
2: There's a lot that could impress you about the all new Honda Prologue EV. True. It's got class leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda Honda, the power of dreams, visit Honda.com slash prologue to learn more.
4: Sean, I thought Joe judge was great. That was fantastic.
2: It was
0: good. You know, a lot of stories, uh, a lot of insight into kind of what makes him tick, what he's learned from the guys that that he's been around, but, you know, how that all of his experiences have led to, you know, kind of the coach he is, the types of people, people that he wants to surround himself with and what he's looking for in players. And uh, definitely learned a lot. I think that's always the thing. You know, anytime you want to really be able to be around some, some special people, you want to listen to learn. And I think both of us got an opportunity to do that today.
4: Yeah, and uh, we're gonna bring in our producer, the great Craig Horlbeck. Craig, what was your take on Joe Judge, a guy who doesn't do a ton of media and certainly isn't as animated as he was for the last you know hour that we had him on?
5: He's a real straight shooter. You know, I thought he was awesome. I think he really like uh, embodies the Giants, and I think he'll do a great job uh, next year, this year. Yeah, and I think if you're a Giants fan listening, you can't
4: help but feel maybe not uh, oh Super Bowl whatever, but you're thinking we're in good hands. Like it felt like that guy is he's he's, it's discipline it's stability it's accountability and i'd be shocked if the giants are one of these goofy teams with a ton of penalties making mistakes next season and the way he spoke about daniel jones the uh the old Giants fan in me that grew up wearing a Phil Simms jersey. I can't help but say I'm a little excited to see if the big blue is relevant through the season. Just not week six, Sean. That's I was going to say, week, who are yeah. you going
0: to root for weeks, week six, Peter? Are you pulling for the Rams you, or are you going back to your old roots? I'm rooting for you. As long as okay,
4: you're my good. co-host we're rooting for the Rams. Rams are going 17 and O and, uh, probably going to oh. win the
0: super. Bowl. Yeah, never mind. Okay, One, we're just trying it. to get ready for training camp, Peter. That, that'll be uh, the next headline. Uh, you know, something like yeah. that. Let's, uh, just let's just be present let's just be still right now baby
4: they say what one game at a time how about one podcast at a time we'll stick with that um (laughs) craig we do something called the emails and the voicemails every week i have gotten a ton of suggestions on twitter especially since the kyle shanahan went gangbusters we've got a million tweets
5: i think i know what it is best one
4: what is it what do you got
0: i think it's airmail i like it I had a couple of buddies, you know, I was just uh, this past weekend, spent some time in Atlanta. I have uh, a couple of my buddies, loyal high school teammates, friends. One of my friends actually suggested that who is a uh, weekly listener to the pod, Bud Crawford said air mail. So I don't know. I, I, I don't mind that.
5: Yeah, my dad texted me being like after the Shannon episode, he's like, What about airmail? And I was like, oh. So Airmail's the one, huh?
0: What what you got a million suggestions. Why don't you throw out your shitty ones? <laughs> no, they're too <laughs> shitty. Not as good as airmail. One of them was like, um uh, like first
4: first class mail. I don't know, whatever. Okay, airmail works. I think. I think overnight deliveries. No, that doesn't even make sense. All right, Craig, <laughs> let's get to the emails and the voice. Yeah, my buddy Eric Ziff gave me one. I'm gonna go through my text because I thought it was really good. I just gotta find it. But in the
5: meantime, Craig, get to the emails and the voicemails. All right, this is from Matt. He asks a question to both of you. He'll start with Sean. He says, Sean, how do you find ways to adjust your looks on offense each year and stay creative in this game? Because it amazes me the amount of new concepts guys like you bring into the league
0: yeah well you know I, i've referenced this before craig uh you know some of the best coaches are also the best thieves there's a really a lot of inventory at our disposal um you know i think at the end of the day a lot of the same things will show themselves up week in and week out year in and year out the the you know, the illustration of what it is right before the snap just might look a little bit different. But as the snap unfolds, uh, usually it ends up being uh, kind of a similar way to distribute all five eligibles or, you know, block certain front structures in the run game. And so uh, I think there's there's things that we try to do. You know, you're always trying to put pressure on people with your tempo, your formations, your motions uh, to really apply pressure to the defense want to try to use personnel groupings as well. But I would say, uh, you know, find and sound ways to attack the defense, but also make sure that you're having the illusion of complexity. So we might be running the same play, but the presentation of it looks different based on how we motion to it, how we create the final formation, what personnel grouping we're doing out of. Uh, But it's that illusion of complexity that I think you see a lot of the best offenses do year in and year out. And that's one of the things that we try to stay true to as well.
5: Peter, he's got a question for you. He asks, I love watching you on Good Morning Football, especially when you go on McAfee's show. For a new journalist, (laughs) what kind of tips would you give me in regards to perfecting a craft in the media game? I am soon taking on an internship where I will have high school football coverage near my college's campus. Great. That's great. That's the first step, doing it. Create content. There's no
4: excuse anymore. And Craig, as someone who's in the media game and is young yourself, I would say if you're not on... YouTube, Twitter, doing a blog and just like for me, there were so many barriers of entry and I can make excuses for why it took me so long to get into, you know, where I'm at now, but I was working my ass off. I've mentioned this before that I wrote for the free subway paper in New York, the Metro, like I wrote for them and I made $15 in an article and I would do any radio interview I could. I was writing for a million freelance blogs. Like, and then once you're there and you're doing it, the people that you meet, the community that you're building, those are the people that 15 years down the line are going to also be doing things at a higher level. And you start building and growing. You know, Nate Burleson was uh, a player when I was you know, first coming up, but I made sure that this guy's a big personality. I'm going to make a relationship with him that now we're co-hosts with each other is great. But Kyle Brandt, my other co-host, was the, the producer on the Jim Rome show picking up phone calls. And I was one of the guests, and we became friendly through that. So it's like my guidance – no matter where you are, there's no excuse anymore if you are not to be producing content. It's not enough to just take classes and to say you want to do it. Go do it. Do it on YouTube. Do it on Twitter. Do it on Instagram. Do it on TikTok. Figure out your own platform, and eventually things will work out for yourself. But uh, that, and then I always say this, don't be an asshole. Don't be a bad person because it's such a small world, and it's not like you should ever be an asshole. But like, treat everyone that you come across well from... People that are starting out or people that you've grown up idolizing. Because as I've said before, some of the nicest guys to me when I was growing up in this industry were Troy Aikman, Phil Sims, Jim Nance, and Peter King. And like it, those are four just like absolute titans of our industry. And those guys were nicer to me than some of the guys who, you know, were a little lower on the on the chain. So be good to people, don't be an asshole and just work your ass off. And I, and, and if you really love it, like coaching. And as Joe Judge and Sean will tell you. Usually things seem to work out.
0: I love that answer, Peter, because we've talked about it before. You know, repetition is the mother of learning, accumulating experiences. You know, I loved what Coach Judge talked about, some of his previous stops, where, hey, you know, you're at some of these schools that might not have the financial to be able to kind of allocate everybody to different departments and you're lying in the field, you're the video coordinator, you're coaching ball. You know, the more you can do uh and being not afraid to shoot your shot. You know, that's the other thing. You know, so often these day and age, you know, people are afraid to put themselves out there. It's like don't be afraid to fail get that experience, learn from that experience, whether it be good or bad. And really don't be afraid to shoot your shot is, is a lot of the things that you're saying. And I love that great answer.
4: And I'll be honest, a lot of the best stuff that you read, and it sounds crazy. is from the beat reporters, obviously, but some of the fan blogs of these teams and, you know, some of these, these videos that they put together, the breakdowns, they're, they're so much more passionate about it than some of the writers who are being paid to do it. And these guys are doing it as a hobby and I notice it. And I think if you you really put your head and your heart into it, I, I feel like there's gonna be an audience, especially now where um, everyone can access everything. And trust me, whether the media guys wanna tell you or not, they're checking their mentions. So don't feel ashamed to send a, an article or send a, a video that you've put together uh, via Twitter or social media or something to someone that you really look up to or just someone that you want
5: their eyes on it. Okay, next question. This is from Mark in Virginia. He wants, it's a question for both of you. Uh, just which coaching moves this past offseason, not including, doesn't have to just be head coach changes, uh, can you see having a big impact in improving a team's offense or defense from the previous season? Mm.
4: Yeah, I'll go first. I think I think Dan Quinn in Dallas is an interesting hire. This is a guy who I think every head coach in the NFL really respects um, for what he did in Atlanta and got them to the Super Bowl and, of course, had some playoff victories other years um, as well. And I think for DQ to now be a defensive coordinator of a team that's so loaded on offense and so raw on defense, I have no problem saying that, with such youth and had such an abysmal season last year, I, I'm fascinated to see how DQ slides into that that role there. And then uh, on the offensive side of the ball you know a lot of these coaches and Sean you know it are offensive minded head coaches but i look at at what they've got in Miami with Brian Flores as defensive coordinator but George Godsey um and uh, what's the what's the running backs coach i'm going blank right Eric now Eric Studesville Studesville the two of them together being co-coordinators with Chan Gailey moving on i think that's a fascinating dynamic for a team that there's a lot of expectations Godsey of course came up through various different coaching trees, but I remember him as a Patriots guy and then with with, with some other teams, but then Stewsville, who everyone raves about, those guys are co-coordinators in Miami to go with Flo, who's obviously the, the head coach and has those guys dialed in. So those are my two, Dan Quinn and then the co-offensive coordinators in Miami. I'm fascinated to see how that works out.
0: I would say this is a little bit of a Homer answer for me, but you know, when you look at a couple of the head coaches, you know, I think Brandon Staley's gonna do a great job with the Chargers. This is a guy that's got great command and capacity in all three phases. Spending a year with him when you understand the intricate knowledge of the game, the details, the way he's able to see the game through the lens of his background as a quarterback. Um, understanding and being around some really good coaches to where you're saying, all right, I know what it want, what I want it to look like when I'm leading. I'm surrounding myself with great coaches that are leading on all three phases uh, while also having an ownership ability to develop a relationship with Herbert. I think Brandon will do a really nice job. And then some of the pieces, I'm excited to see how he activates the Derwin James of the world, the Joey Boses, the guys that, you know, Kenneth Murray. There's some exciting pieces to work with, very similar to what was so enticing about him talking about Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey. You know, when John Johnson was with us and now he's gone on to sign a big deal with the Browns that I think he'll do an outstanding job. I'm really excited for Brandon. And then a couple other guys that have gotten coordinator jobs from our staff. You know, Joe Barry's going to do a great job in Green Bay working with Matt LaFleur. I think Shane Waldron is going to have a really good impact on the Seahawks offense other than hopefully twice a year when we play them. And, <laughs> you know, and then Aubrey Pleasant, you know, another you know rising star Talk in this profession. Talk up Aubrey. I think he needs No, Let's you know, I, I, he, he, he doesn't need it because he's a great coach and anybody that's spent any time with him will feel the charisma, the presence, capacity for the game, uh, great energy, but also ability to develop relationships. Those are some guys that I've had a chance to see up close and personal that I can tell you those are going to be great additions to those staffs in Green Bay, Seattle, and a uh, guy leading the way with the Chargers. I'm excited for those guys.
5: Okay, great. Let's get to the uh, voicemail portion of Airmail, as we're now calling it. Here we go.
1: Hey, guys. This is uh, Joey uh, from North Dakota. Um, Sean, my question for you is uh, what's your favorite uh, big brain play that you might've called that worked out really uh, well for you guys in your career. And uh, Peter, what's your favorite non football question to ask uh, anybody you might be interviewing? Also, what's up, Craig? And I don't know if this has been pitched yet, but uh, why not calling this segment airmail? I don't know. Just came to me. Thanks guys.
0: Nice. There you go. Well, Hey. Hey, You got, a, you got a name of the segment and then, uh, you know, I'll keep it simple. You know, there's, I don't know that I've it? ever had a really Sean? a
4: big, I don't know that I've had
0: a big brain play, but a good copy play might've been the two point play that uh, uh, we scored against the Packers, you know, where we ended up kind of throwing a little perimeter screen out to Van Jefferson and then he flipped it to Cam Akers coming out of the backfield, but. Greatest coaches, greatest thieves stole that one from the Miami Dolphins via Shane Waldron finding it. So look out for that on the Seattle Seahawks film next year. Yeah,
4: I remember that play. It was a two-point conversion for the Dolphins. Salvin Ahmed made the little pitch, and then they took it in. I recall it, and then I saw you guys pull it out in the playoffs. Um, Airmail seems to be the unanimous pick. We're one episode left. We might have it. My friend Eric Ziff, I finally got a hold of him. His was pick six and we do three and three but I I guess airmail might take a better Eh, you know if you you give
0: a little if you get if you explain the background yeah that's a good uh, good suggestion by Eric but uh, hey you know let's go ahead and vote Uh, pick six or
5: airmail Craig what do you think well I don't want to be uh, constricted to the parameters of six questions every time so I like airmail
4: that's fair
5: okay hey, airmail it is there you go what
4: was your friend Sean Rusty what was his name Bubba
0: (laughs) his name was bud that's his nickname his first name is john John. rusty bubba (laughs) (laughs) you're a really good listener let me tell you (laughs) i don't
4: even remember my question what question
5: do i ask people um non-football question
4: yeah non-football you know what's always good if you ask like a guy like when you were a kid what poster did you have in your room? And Sean, I think I've asked you that in an interview before too, because I think every guy or gal who ends up doing anything in athletics grew up loving the sport. So like I had a Don Mattingly Hitman poster in my room, but I also had, I want to say a Warren Moon poster and then a Bernard King poster. And it was when Bernard King was randomly with the Bullets for a while. And I wasn't even a Bullets fan. It was one of those cool like Coast Brothers posters. And it, was, it said like, uh, capital punishment or something like that. Sean, what poster, like sports poster did you have in your bedroom as a kid?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I still am. Michael Jordan, man, I had him crossing up Russell with the game-winning shot against the Jazz in game six to cap off the second Pete. I have Jerry Rice going in with his hands up after he's probably taken a slant 80 yards. Dion, after he took a pick six back against the Falcons when he was playing for the Niners, his one-season Super Bowl defensive player of the year. You know, uh, those, those are the ones, but, uh, there was always a steady Michael Jordan poster somewhere that, uh, he's, uh, he's the man.
4: I never was like a Farrah Fawcett, Pamela Anderson poster, Britney Spears, but like, I feel like that's a lot of the answers I get from the athletes. And it's, it will be like, I had Beyonce up in my room. Like, okay, interesting. Craig, what about you? Who'd you have up poster
5: wise as a kid in your bedroom? Well, this is going to expose my age, but (laughs) it was Ben Roethlisberger okay nice.
4: that's fine
5: yeah i mean miami, uh, miami of ohio has a lot of love on this podcast don't get me wrong my mom's side's from pittsburgh so i grew up rooting for steelers and yeah ben was drafted i think when i was 10 wow okay
0: so well so if you did have a picture of a of a babe when you were growing up peter who would you have put a poster up of if you could pick could call um Denise
4: Richards was a big fan. Yasmin Bleeth, I was a big fan. So uh, you must
0: have been a Baywatch fan, huh? You uh, probably Donna, were watching
4: Donna it. Donna uh, There were moments. <laughs> um, yeah, Baywatch. Yeah, Sean. Baywatch. You? Can you answer? How about or you? Is this?
0: How about you, Craig? How,
4: hold on, hold on. I had one of my wife uh, growing up. Let me just make sure. I yes, 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 yes. Craig, what nice. about you?
5: Um, uh, depending on when it came out, I, Megan Fox Transformers was a, was a big one. <laughs> okay solid i mean sometimes you just gotta play the hits you know yeah yeah that's it sean can you answer or is this the
0: question you know the question was mine not not to be answered (laughs) great i'm gonna cut my answer (laughs) it's
4: a good place to end it guys i love this podcast i love you guys we got one more to go it's gonna be up next week um And it's going to be a doozy. We can't wait. But thank you for Joe Judge. Thank you uh, to both of you guys. And of course, thank you to the listeners who have been sending it in. Craig, one last time, give us the email address if someone wants to send an email for next week's podcast. Sure. Flyingcoachpodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the great Yasmin Bleeth as we wrap (laughs) this one, Flying Coach. Um, Guys, this has been awesome. We got one more left. Let's finish up strong. Great job, guys.
3: sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
2: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, you want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.